The Geeky Retro Nerd Show is part of the Art, Comedy and Pop Culture Network of Podcasts. Hello, hiya, welcome to the Geeky Retro Nerd Show. My name is Adam and I am a Geeky Retro Nerd. The show, as always, is sponsored by TruffleShuffle.com. Head on over to their website. Use my exclusive discount code GRNS15. That's GRNS15. And you will be able to buy the geeky t-shirts and retro gifts to your heart's content. Safe in the knowledge that you will be getting a 15% discount when you spend £25 or more. And, of course, there is international shipping, so nobody misses out. Thank you so much to the executive producers for this episode. Dave Flynn, Glyn Davies, Mark Straker, Joy Gradwell from Mind Active and Liam O'Hare. If you would like to be credited as an executive producer on the show, have a look in the episode notes and all the details are on there. Now then, I've rushed through that a little bit because I, I want to get I want to get to the main part of this episode. It's an incredible conversation with a guy, an incredibly interesting and really nice as well, really really nice fella called Mark Marshall. Now Mark's had an incredible career; he's done loads of stuff. But our conversation focuses more on his time at Lucasfilm. Yes, he was at Lucasfilm in the late seventies at an incredibly interesting time during production of Empire Strikes Back. Wow. And he was also a certain Mr. Spielberg's assistant at Amblin Entertainment in the 80s. And what a conversation we had. We spoke for ages. Honestly, we spoke for nearly two hours and I've been humming and hawing about what to do, whether to bring it all out in one episode. But what I've decided to do is, is do it in two parts. So this is part one. Have a listen, enjoy. I'm sure you will. Okay, so I'm I'm really excited. I'm super excited today. When I started doing this podcast, one of the reasons I started doing it is because I wanted to speak to people who had been there at my favorite movies, people who had experienced it and had interesting stories to tell. So I've got an incredible guest for you on the show today. Um, this guest ticks a lot of boxes when it comes to talking about some of my favourite movies. And I'm super happy to say welcome to the show, Mark Marshall. Mark, how are you doing? Well, I'm doing well, Adam. Thank you. Good morning and uh, good afternoon, good evening and good night. <laughs> it's, yeah. So it's morning where you are. It's evening here. So you'll, you'll have just finished your breakfast. Uh, I'm just about to have my tea. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'll have uh, my back of your tea. <laughs> Mark, thanks so much uh, for agreeing to speak to us on the show. Um, we we connected on Facebook, didn't we? And yes. uh, and I and I was uh, very keen to get you on the show. And the reason I was keen to get you on the show, Mark, is because, like I said before, there in, in your little intro, is that my show is about. Uh, you know, the things I loved growing up in the 80s and the early 90s, particularly movies and TV. Um, and you've been involved in a lot of them, <laughs> a lot of my favorite movies. So I was I was like, right, I need to get Mark on. I need to speak to him because me and my listeners, I am sure, 
will be uh, thrilled to hear what you have to say. Um, Mark, when I have somebody on the show that has got so many things to talk about, I, I struggle to um, find a starting point. But I know exactly where I want to start with you, if that's okay. okay. Um, of course. Lucasfilm. You joined Lucasfilm in, it was, was it 1978 you joined yes, Lucasfilm, Mark? Yes, 41 years ago. A long time ago. Yes. <laughs> and, and actually, I wasn't even born. I wasn't I wasn't born until 1980. Oh, so, my word. You were born the year of Empire Strikes Back. I was. So I'm the same age as Empire Strikes Back. So myself and that movie are both celebrating 40 years of existence oh, <laughs> next year. Um, Mark, how did you... How did you come to be at Lucasfilm? Did you know George Lucas? Did you have to apply for the job? Were you asked? No, I'll tell you. Um, it, it's it's kind of a little bit of a long backstory, but I I uh, was born and raised in Oklahoma, mm -hmm. and about ninth grade year, I guess I I really took an interest in filmmaking, and uh, some school friends and I would get together and, and make these little eight millimeter comedies, yeah. and it slowly dawned on me throughout my high school years that maybe this was something that I could try to do for a living. And uh, in 1977, early 1977, my my father passed away from cancer, and it it really put me at a crossroads. Well, coincidentally, at about the same time, the dean of the USC School of Cinema, which was much smaller than it is now, mm -hmm. uh, uh, had a massive heart attack and passed away. And his wife um, was trying to decide um, how the program was going to go forward. Well, they would do this summer program every year in conjunction with Universal Studios. Right. And I... I um, happened to see an ad which she she actually kind of uh, decided late that they were going to go ahead and do it so i think it was late april maybe early may when um they went ahead and placed an ad in american film institute magazine and and i happened to see it and applied i mean it was open to uh 50 people from all walks of life and all professions and and um i was accepted so uh, i Came to LA in uh, in late May of 1977, and um, uh, did this program where we spent three days a week at the school making films and and getting critiqued and taking other film related classes, and then two days a week at Universal Studios where we would uh, get to hear from professionals. Wow! And one of the speakers that came to talk to us was Howard Kazanjian. Um, Howard. Uh, had been a, an, an AD. He worked on on uh, Hitchcock's Family Plot and and had risen through the ranks. And George, coincidentally, had just asked him to produce the sequel to American Graffiti right mm -hmm. before he came to speak to us. Um, George had no intention of ever doing a sequel, but he had a three picture deal at Universal and still owed them a picture or two. And and uh, he decided that his involvement would be better than not being involved at all. And so he asked Howard to produce, and Howard came to speak to us. And at the end of the class, um, a girl raised her hand and said, um, you know, how can we visit some of the sets here at Universal? And Howard said, well, just come talk to me after class. 
and after class, this girl and I were the only two that actually went up and talked to Howard. And so on our, our days off, uh, we would call Howard and Howard would write us passes for Universal and and we would go and spend the day on different uh, film and television sets. Wow. Um, you know, Universal was doing a lot of television um, back in those days, like Rockford Files and, and uh, the Hardy Boys, Nancy Drew Mysteries, Quincy, Battlestar Galactica. Um, uh, actually, Battlestar Galactica, I think, came later because that was um, – inspired by star wars so yeah. anyway we um and and at the end of the of the day we would go and talk to howard and tell him what we learned and and so at the end of the summer um i quote unquote graduated and went back to oklahoma but i kept in touch with howard and in january of 78 i decided look i, I need to be in la if i want to do this for a living i need to be in la so i moved out here and every week I would call Howard and ask him if he had an opening um, on on more American graffiti, and he, he would say no, but call back next week, and I would do that. <laughs> um, as my friend George says, there's a fine line between persistence and stalking, and uh, <laughs> I, you know. But I felt I was just persistent, and in you know eight months later, in August of '78, Howard called and had an opening for a film runner um, on the production, and the film runner would simply pick up the film at the airport because they were shooting on location, mm-hmm. take it to the lab, uh, and then early the next morning pick up the, the process film and send it back up to location so they could look at dailies. And I did that for uh, for the entire run of the production. And when it was over, Howard called me into his office at Lucasfilm and said, um, um, you know, did you enjoy the experience? And I said, this, this was the, the a dream come true. And he said, well, he said, would you like to stay on? And of course, I mean, you know, didn't get it a second thought and ended up staying at Lucasfilm for a little over two years. Wow, that's an incredible story because, um, you know, 1977, what, what a year to be getting involved oh. in, uh, in movies, in particular Lucasfilm. Yeah, 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 timing was impeccable, Mark. <laughs> Well, <laughs> I, you know, I, I, yeah, I guess I was just very, very, very lucky. But, um, you know, that that summer of 78, um, I, I had finished. I went to Valley College and, and took some film courses, which was kind of a waste of time. But but that summer, uh, uh, a, a now defunct um, school called Sherwood Oaks Experimental College did a, a weekend seminar in which they um, – would have different professionals come in and, and speak, and and they did a weekend seminar uh, and and some on special effects because of course you know Star Wars had been huge and it was still playing in theaters at the time yeah. a year yeah. later, mm-hmm. and I um, uh, they did one on special effects and the guys from ILM came down uh, to talk to us, and I was sitting in the audience waiting for the program to start and there were these guys in front of me talking about about some of the work they did. And I engaged in the conversation and kind of headed off with these guys. And um, they worked for a company called CPC Associates, which had been started by a guy named uh, uh, Roy Seawright, who was the optical uh, effects guy on the Laurel and Hardy shorts. Oh, wow. and, and his son, uh, Ron, had, had taken over the business 
and they were doing a lot of commercial work for um, uh, you know the Pillsbury Doughboy and and uh, uh, Mrs. Butterworth syrup and and uh, Fuji film and and uh, Gino's Pizza things like that, and um, they actually hired me on uh, on a daily basis as a PA, and so that was my first real experience. But it was you know um, about three months into that when when Howard called, so um, I felt like at least I had a little bit of you know knew what to expect going in, but you know. I think I really wasn't that prepared, but but you know you you just um, you you get thrown in the in the deep end of the pool and you just learn to swim. So so the deep end of the pool uh, was probably in the shape of a sequel to the biggest movie of all time, um, Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. What what was your <laughs> what was your involvement with that movie, Mark? What? Well, I was strictly, you know, I was I was a PA at Lucasfilm. Now, um, you know, at the time, uh, George and Gary Kurtz still had an office at Universal, uh-huh. and uh, George purchased a a building across the street from Universal, mm-hmm. um, which had belonged to Olson Egg Company, mm-hmm. and completely refurbished it, and uh, it became kind of Lucasfilm South, which was. Uh, corporate and publishing and merchandising. Uh, so we had an LA presence, even though George was up north and ILM was up north. And um, so when we started, um, uh, you know, they, they really staffed up and then started pre-production on Empire. And about that time, uh, a, a gentleman named Sid Gannis, who had been the head of worldwide uh, advertising for Warner Brothers and actually devised the campaign for Superman the movie, all right. Uh, which um, I, I was just, you know, that was one of my favorite movies. Uh, oh, yeah. Came best, best, film. Super, best superhero oh, yeah, oh, movie ever made. Still is absolutely, absolutely, bar none. And so Sid came, and and Sid was one of those guys who um, he was always. He knew everybody. He was always doing something. He he couldn't sit still, and he was very open and. So he, um, you know, here I was a PA, but but I helped Sid kind of move in and and got to know him a little bit. And he and a and the and one of the publicists who was also the director of fan relations, a guy named Craig Miller, yeah, kind of took me under their wing and allowed me to kind of stretch my wings. I mean, now I never had any fantasies, you know, about being a writer, um, as as. Dirty Harry says, you know, a man's got to know his limitations. And and I felt like, you know, I, I didn't think I could write. But they allowed me to be involved in some of the um, the Star Wars fan club newsletters like Bantha Tracks. And, and cool. so I got to do a little bit more. And uh, when the time came for Craig to go to London to do the cast and crew interviews, uh, he – asked if I wanted to go along and Sid Gannis approved. And so I got to spend about nine days in London uh, doing the cast and crew interviews. And uh, so I was really fortunate in that, that I had people who, who again, threw me in the deep end and, and I had to keep my head above water and I, I, man, I just learned so much. And, And so, so those days were really special to me. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds absolutely incredible. Um, and something I've just wrote on my piece of paper here, Mark, is uh, it must have been a, a great time to engage with the fans. Um, oh, it was. I'll tell you, the first year, I'll never forget, and, and Craig doesn't remember this. I'll, um, you know, he um, he wasn't there, but I, I, for some reason, I got assigned to uh, cover this um, Star Wars wedding. Um, uh, you know, the groom was Luke and the bride was Leah. And, and, um, of course this was before empire came out and, uh, uh, <laughs> Obi-Wan Kenobi was presiding. And, and when the, uh, when Obi-Wan said, does anybody here know any reason why this couple should not be joined in holy matrimony, Darth Vader appeared, you know, with some stormtroopers. And I mean, it was, it was, now this was also the days before cosplayers or anything else or, or uh, official costumes. So these were all handmade. Um, and it just showed me that the, the depth of, of the love for those characters and, and the power that, that, that film had, I was, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it still stays with me. What was that a real wedding, Mark? Yeah, it was, it was an actual wedding. And I guess you could argue that, that uh, you know, these people were were kind of uh, I don't know being um, they weren't taking it seriously. But but you know, and I don't know if the couple's still married. But I got to tell you, they they were completely devoted to each other, and they treated it as a sacred ceremony. So uh, you know, I I was totally blown away that that they they would go to those lengths, you know, to uh, to uh, to do that. It's amazing, isn't it? It's so early in the in the franchise's fandom that that people were doing those kind of things. Oh, absolutely! Already, yeah. You know, a year uh, a year after Star Wars came out, they re-released the film, although it was still playing in theaters around the country. And we had a uh, a screening at the United Artists uh, Multiplex in in North Hollywood, and uh, Tony Daniels came out and you know the fans were i mean there were thousands of people in that parking lot outside the theater and a lot of them came in costume now a lot of them are like luke's and leah's and things but but i remember i had and i have a picture of of a homemade c-3po um costume and tony daniel standing next to this gentleman and <laughs> it was just the you know again the the love and devotion um, was just really heartwarming to see. They they truly embraced that film, and um, I mean, of course, I was a fan too. So yeah, you know. And 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 did it occur to you then, Mark, that um, Star Wars was going to be something special? Well, you know, you just know what you like, and yeah. and uh, you know, I was just part of a of a of a legion of people who just was so taken in by the movie. I mean, I, you know, I remember seeing it with my brother, um, at the North point in San Francisco and waiting in line for hours. I mean, I think we, we, there were two or three screenings that happened before we got in and it was just, it was, uh, you know, it was uh, just a, an amazing bonding experience with all these strangers that were, you know, there for one purpose. And I, I remember after the, after the movie, after coming out of the theater, I thought, you know, I just want to meet George Lucas. 
just to just to shake his hand and thank him for, you know, after this very cynical um, period in the 70s, you know, films like French Connection and Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry and Race with the Devil and all these films that had such kind of down endings um, to 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 see something that, that gave you hope and made you cheer. And, and uh, it was just a real emotional experience. Yeah. And I'm just thinking about that couple that got married as um luke and leia i I wonder i wonder what the thoughts were by the time it got a return of the jedi i found (laughs) out that leia was luke's sister (laughs) (laughs) Uh, i don't want to go there (laughs) um uh, so yeah so so you mentioned before that you, you you got to go to london um and interview some of the cast and crew who who did you speak to can you remember did you get to speak to urban kirshner uh, spoke to Kirsch, um, uh, uh, spoke to Gary, and uh, gosh, we, I mean, Mark Harrison and Carrie and Peter and, and Kenny and Tony and um, uh, Mark. We, we interviewed Mark, and then and Mark said, what are you guys doing tonight? And and Craig and I were just going to go back to the bed and breakfast that we were staying at, and he said, well, let's barbecue. So um, we went to um, the flat he and Mary Lou had in, in, uh, in Soho and walked down to the to the butcher shop and and got some steaks and and went back and had a had a had a great evening just barbecuing and talking and and uh, so it was really kind of one of those atmospheres where even you know even though um, it wasn't the struggles of the of the first film um, and they knew they they were under a lot of pressure to you know deliver this this great film they uh, they really took their time to enjoy it and i so i i really uh you know was amazed by that fact that these guys, these guys were so professional but they they took time to really um you know in, enjoy their their personal lives um the the one tragic note was that uh, craig and i were interviewing john barry the production nice. designer and yeah. of course John had done, you know, the first Star Wars. He'd done Superman. Um, he went way back, and and during the interview, he said, you know, I, I'm I'm not feeling well. Can we continue this interview tomorrow? And we said certainly. Um, he went home early, and that night his fever spiked. Um, I, I I heard it was 107. I don't know if that's true, but and he passed away the next morning, um, and I think he had uh, meningitis. And it was just a—I mean—it was such a shock to everyone. And yeah. Craig and I were actually quarantined um, at the bed and breakfast for uh, several days because it was very contagious, and and they were worried that you know anybody who came in contact with John might have been infected. So it it was a a very sad time too. Sad and uh, scary for yourself. Yes, it was a little scary, but but uh, not as scary as as uh, um, you know the, the the airline that we that we flew over on, which was a, a very cheap airline called Freddie Laker Airways, went bankrupt <laughs> while we were quarantined and uh, we were kind of stranded. Oh no! But uh, you know that was that was nothing really. And and you know I I, I said before it would have been a great time to uh, engage with the fans because I'm I'm not sure if. There was that kind of thing back then, if because the, because there was a real focus on the fandom and the fans and wanting the fans to be happy and and engaging and making the fans be part of it, wasn't that? Oh, absolutely. Well, you know that's 
I think part, you know, a small part of the reason for the success of Star Wars could actually maybe be attributed to Charlie Lippincott, who was hired by George to engage the fans, you know, back in 1976. They were, they were, of course, they weren't the the sci-fi conventions that they are today, but there was a very dedicated group of fans, and uh, Charlie would go to these conventions with a slideshow and artwork and and posters and uh, really ginned up um, a lot of expectations from the fans. And, yeah. um, you know, even though there was no Internet, there was certainly a network of, of getting the word out. You know, word of mouth was very strong. And, and uh, so that was really the start, I think, of it. And I don't think anybody ever really thought about, uh, you know, these, these like with 2001 or any of these other films that came out, I don't think anybody thought about, um, oh, well, let's go right to the fans and and see if we can build some interest. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's probably another example of where, you know, the, 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 the creative minds and people behind the Star Wars movies were ahead of their time. Yes, definitely. Uh, Absolutely. And, and George really... Uh, I think was very was pioneering in that effort as well. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's looking back, it, it, it must have been so important having that fan base engagement. Uh, but it must have been great. Must have been brilliant. Um, what I was going to say as well is, you know, you said before about having posters and slides and going out and things like that. It's very different nowadays, isn't it? With the, oh. with the big with the big reveals at the you know whether it's San Diego Comic Con or Star Wars Celebration or New there's, York Comic Con, a, yeah, it's all very high tech. There's very uh, there's a lot of uh, a lot of money spent, and of course the you know the studios uh, get the stars involved too, which um, yeah, which is great. Um, uh, my friend Jim Michaels is uh, a co-executive producer on the TV series Supernatural. And he goes every year. Of course, this is the last year because the show is ending. But it is just uh, uh, amazing the the fan base that it draws and the enthusiasm. And you know they the, the they probably kept that show on the air f- five years longer than uh, maybe it would have been had the had the the you know rabid fans not been there. Yeah. Um, so Empire Strikes Back is released what was the what was the vibe within lucasfilm at that time uh, when empire strikes back came out did, did they did they feel that they'd done enough that they feel they'd made a great movie did they feel they'd made a uh, 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 a worthy sequel to to the original you know i think everybody was holding their breath um i remember that um there, there wasn't there. You know, there were no congratulatory um, uh, calls or, or a big. You know, I mean, um, uh, positive um, feeling around the office. It was. I think there was a lot of anticipation, a lot of holding of breaths because there was so much writing on this. And yeah. uh, but we, um, the the opening night. Um, the film opened on May 21st, 1980, and the night before, at midnight, um, or I guess the same day, uh, the Egyptian Theater in Hollywood um, held the very first, you know, screening at 12:01 a.m. Yeah. And the publicity staff and I went down, and and it, it, the the, I mean, it was the atmosphere was so electric, and we got into the theater. It was, of course, 
packed out and the film started and you didn't hear the first half of the movie because of the cheering and the screaming. <laughs> and uh, it was just, we cried. It was just so emotional. Um, you know, we all had something invested in the movie because you know, we worked for the company, but, but just to hear the fans, you know, because that's what you do. You make, you make movies um, to get the audience to, to, feel something and and yeah. and to see their enthusiasm it was just i mean it was unbelievable I'll, i will never forget that night um and coming out and just feeling like the world had changed um and of course the next day the, the reviews were you know so positive and and um uh, and uh, kirsch did such an amazing job on that movie oh uh, yeah i mean i think i think he nailed it Oh, absolutely! He, he absolutely nailed it. He, he got—I think he, he just got everything right, everything right. Uh, but what I was going to say, so that was the first time you saw it with the fans. First time I saw it with the fans. Um, I'll confess to you and no one else, so don't tell anybody. <laughs> but um, George ran the film um, at at Goldwyn Studios. Um, gosh. Um, several months before and um, I had to deliver the film down to the projection room and managed to kind of stay around in the projection <laughs> booth. And so I actually got to see the film. There were still some effects that weren't finished and, and things and the score wasn't in yet, but I got to see the, the film essentially before. And um, it, it, I think that was one of the things that was like, you know, um, trying to keep a secret until, until, you know, it can be revealed. I, I, it was just so difficult. Um, but yeah, so, the, but, but that was the first time with the fans. And, and again, it was just overwhelming. So did you see, you know, when you were hanging around, <laughs> when everybody else was watching the movie, did, did you see the big reveal at the end? Yes. So, so you knew. Yes. And, uh, but of course I was, wasn't going to say anything. And, and Craig Miller actually had devised about 16 different um, false storylines right. that were leaked to the press, and uh, which I thought was brilliant because it, it kept through everybody off the scent and, um, <laughs> and everybody thought they had the scoop, you know, of the lifetime. And of course they were all wrong and surprised. And, and uh, so, but the, uh, but the gasps in that theater in the Egyptian theater that night, was just it was chilling. I, I guess I'll never forget that. I mean, that was a little bit crafty putting out um, false storylines to put people off the set, but it was so secretive, wasn't it? So yes, secretive. it was. Yeah, it was. And I'll tell you, um, we um, I was actually around too when when um, the, the actors recorded their ADR and. Um, uh, so I was there when James Earl Jones, you know, did his line, um, wow. you know, I am your father. And, and uh, so, again, it was just it, it, uh, we did a lot of the people Lucasfilm didn't even know because we weren't uh, given scripts. We weren't allowed to really know. Um, so um, that was the that was really the start of kind of, you know, keeping things close to your vest so that oh, it didn't spoil wow. anything for the fans, which I know that there's, you know, people resent, you know, why are you keeping things so uh, quiet, but you, you don't want to spoil things. And that's, yeah, exactly. uh, you want to keep it fresh. So it must've been torture 
keeping that secret, Mark. <laughs> it was because I'm not good at keeping secret. Well, I can keep a secret. It's those blabbermouths I tell who can't. So I'll just make that clear right now. <laughs> oh, fascinating. Absolutely incredible. And, and was it true? You know, you read a lot of stuff uh, about that time and trying to keep that big reveal under wraps. And David Prowse let, let it slip, didn't he? At yes. one point. Yes, and, and, and so I think it, I think it might have been because of that that he fell foul a little bit of of Lucasfilm. He he did, and I think that that Dave, you know, uh, he never really got the recognition as as you know the guy who was in the Vader suit and yeah. and really you know brought Vader to life. I mean, James Earl Jones, of course, is is the one who is is recognized. But so Dave was probably a, a little you know, bitter about that. And, and, uh, but, um, yeah, he, it, it, it he, it, things were kept from him from that point on and it was sad. Yeah. Um, cause like I say, I think, I think I read he was at some function or, you know, a, a star Wars thing. And he, and he said, Darth Vader's Luke's dad. Now, if the internet had been around in them days, <laughs> yeah. Twitter um, or Facebook or, and I've met I've met David Prowse. He's a nice fella. You know he is, and it's sad that I know that he announced last year or the year before that that um, he wouldn't be doing any more conventions. And, and you know he's oh. he's elderly and 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 not in in good health. And and um, you know it was like when Peter Mayhew died. You just had the sense that um, it's the end of an era, and uh, and the end of 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 a time that was that was very seminal in so many people's lives. Yeah, I, I, I think you're totally right. End end of an era, you know. Um, everybody's getting older, but of course we've got the new movies now. We've got new heroes and <laughs> um, uh, to to watch on the screen. Yes. Um, so Empire Strikes Back. You've got that under your belt. Um, so what? So what was next for you? That was that was another huge movie. The next year, wasn't that? Well, <laughs> while while we were, um, we I, I think we had just, yeah, I think Empire had come out or was about to come out, and Lucasfilm announced that um, the next project was going to be Raiders of the Lost Ark, and that Steven Spielberg would be directing now. Before I moved to L.A. permanently, uh, back in December 77, uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind came out. And that movie really captured my imagination. Uh, it just it, it was so um, powerful for me. And when I came out of the theater, I thought, I just want to meet Steven Spielberg. Well, that was my chance because Steven was in it. We were setting up production offices actually at the Egg Company. So uh, Steven came and, and – uh, um, he and Kathy Kennedy and Frank Marshall settled in and Frank, who is not related to me, but kind of took me under his wing because of the same last name, came to me one day and said, do you know how to run a 35 millimeter projector? And I said, of course I do. Well, I'd never run one before in my life. <laughs> little he said Stephen was looking for, um, someone to run, um, you know, to screen films for him at home, uh, while he was prepping Raiders. And so I got the job and, and, uh, went up to Steven's house the first night. And the, actually the first thing he ran, uh, that I ran for him was, um, 
uh, A Guy Named Joe, which was one of his favorite movies. Uh, Spencer Tracy and Irene Dunn, 1943, MGM. And um, MGM had 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 struck a, just a brand new print for him. And so I threaded up the projectors and and we started and the film started clattering. And so I said, Stephen, I have to stop for a minute. And I looked down and I had split the first 50 feet of film right down the center because um, I had threaded up wrong. And so I quickly snipped it off and, and uh, rethreaded the projector. Unfortunately, did it right that time and, um, n- and never told Stephen. So, um, again, don't, don't say anything. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but that was, you know, again, learning on the job. And, and, but uh, it was great. I mean, and, and Stephen, um, you know, went off to, to um, England and France um, and Tunisia to do, to do Raiders. And, and actually – um, before they came back, I had I had kind of gotten a, a, a little I don't know I, I don't know if I was disillusioned or or what, but I thought I don't know if this is if this is for me, and so I left Lucasfilm and um, ended up going into into writing uh, radio and TV commercials for a while and and uh, before I kind of veered back into film, but but Raiders was great I was there through production. And uh, I seem to kind of come and go out of Stephen's life during Raiders movies, during Indiana Jones movies, for some reason. <laughs> so, uh, so what? So what was your? So how did you come to be actually involved in the production of Raiders of the Lost Ark? So you're going to Steven Spielberg's house and running movies for him, which is absolutely incredible. My mind is blown. Um, <laughs> What what was your involvement in the actual uh, production of of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark? Well, I stayed in L.A., so I think the extent of my involvement really was sending, um, first of all, sending telexes back and forth um, uh, in the days before fax machines, and yeah. uh, so keeping, you know, I was kind of the intermediary between the uh, production office in L.A. and then and in and in England, and then Stephen asked me to. Um, send him care packages every week. So I would I would send him some canned food and a TV guide, and <laughs> he, would, he would mark up the TV guide and, and send it back to me. And I would um, record all sorts of, of television programs on a Betamax um, machine and and send him the tape so he could watch American television while he was over um, shooting. Right. <laughs> and what what kind of things did you have to record for him? Oh gosh, I mean, you know, everything from the Tonight Show to, to um, uh, you know, uh, some of the news uh, magazine shows, and and um, and then some of the comedies. I mean, I, I can't remember exactly what was playing back then, whether Mork and Mindy or whatever, but but it was just kind of a, a wide variety of stuff. And because Stephen loved uh, loved television too, and and I think he wanted that touchstone of, of of feeling like he was home. He was really in a foreign land, literally, and. Uh, and felt kind of isolated. Yeah. So you, so you were keeping Steven Spielberg going and entertained while, while he was away shooting Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> yeah. So he could, uh, he could uh, watch American television and eat Chef Boyardee. Yeah. So obviously Raiders was a, was a um, Lucasfilm uh, picture. Yes. Um, wait, were you still at Lucasfilm for Return of the Jedi? No, I actually left in, 19 I think the end of 1980 
So all right, uh, I, was okay. there, I was there long enough to get uh, my bonus. George was George was so generous. Um, he decided uh, after Empire or um, with the results of or the the box office from Empire, he gave everyone um, points in the movie. And I guess depending on your involvement, you know, um, yeah. you, you, you know, he divvied it up. And, and I got uh, – I, th- I remember, you know, here I was a PA. I was making $200 a week, and I was – and I got five two-hundredths of 1% of the profits from Empire Strikes Back and got a check for $5,000, um, which was more money than I'd ever seen in my life. Yeah, uh, it was it was uh, amazing. So I was there long enough to get that, um, <laughs> and and then I, I I don't know. I guess I was just restless. I I think maybe the the feeling was that I wanted to be more involved in things, and right. and so this was kind of one of those ways to 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 test that. But but of course I I kind of got sidetracked, um, you know, doing radio and television commercials. It, it yeah. uh, um, until a few years later. Yeah, um, because you know you you said you just said there you, you kind of got um, maybe a little bit rest restless and wanted to get more involved in things. Um, you went to Amblin in 1984. Is that right? Yes. Um, yeah, I was. I was. Um, I was. It was actually October of '83. Um, I was visiting a friend of mine um, at Amblin, which was based on Warner Brothers at the time. Yeah. And Universal was actually um, constructing the Stevens New Production Office uh, on the Universal lot. And um, I hadn't seen Stevens since I left uh, Lucasfilm, but um, uh, I, I, he was supposed to be gone that day. He, was, he didn't actually, wasn't out of town, but he wasn't coming to work. And while I was talking to my friend, um, Stephen came down the walkway with uh, Jake Steinfeld, who was his his trainer at the time. And uh, he came in and said, hi. And he said, what are you doing right now? And I thought he meant at the moment. I said, well, nothing. And he said, well, you know, he, he told me about what Universal was doing. And he said, I'm going to need a projectionist. Do you want to come back and work? And I said, oh, sure. So um, unfortunately, it turned out that the uh, – projectionist at, at, at Amblin on the Universal lot had to be union, and I wasn't union. So um, instead, I ended up um, becoming his personal assistant. I mean, he put me up in his office. Wow. So, I mean, that's, that must have been pinch yourself stuff, that. Because yeah. I know, you know, I mean, 1980, back end of 1983, 84, I suppose Steven Spielberg at that time was still relatively uh it was early in his career but it's but he'd already knocked out such fantastic films you know in the shape of jaws raiders close encounters um it must have been am i dreaming here stuff i I am steven spielberg's assistant yeah well i'll tell you what i was just trying to keep my head above water i mean i you looking back now i wish i had had really um, enjoyed it more, taking it in. I mean, I was so busy just trying to, to, um, keep my job, uh, you know, cause you, you go through all sorts of, of, of fears, um, when you're working for someone like that, that, you know, am I doing a good enough job? Are they going to tell me, um, you know, am I going to get fired the next day? And so, um, I, I was just putting the effort in and, uh, but, 
I got to tell you, I mean, it, it, it was really one of the, the best jobs I ever had. You know, I mean, 82 was the, the year of, of E.T. and Poltergeist. Yeah, yeah. and so I'm, speaking really... to, I'm, I'm speaking to Dee Wallace on Monday. Oh, are you? Yeah. She, I'll tell you, she, um, she really was was so great in that movie. And, and uh, uh, of course, all the attention is on the young actors and, and everything. But Dee did a, a tremendous job on that oh, movie. Oh, yeah. And um, so th- that was, you know, I mean, Stephen was really riding high. And then and then, of course, in 83 um, was the, you know, the Twilight Zone debacle. And and that kind of put a damper on things. But right. but Stephen was already in production on Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. So um, he really wasn't around for that. And then uh, uh, so when I joined Amblin, it was, you know, it was in January of 84 and the film, uh, uh, the sequel came out in, in May. So um, a lot of the, you know, the, the work was was gearing up for that. And, and really my job was to um, take care of, of Stephen's real world so that he could he could dream. He could stay in his world and uh, which is what, um, you know he did so well. So, um, he had, we had a staff of three, we had an executive assistant, a secretary and me. And, um, you know, they were, they were great times. I mean, I look back now and, and, and realize, you know, I mean, gosh, the first, the first, uh, or the second year, I mean, in 85, um, we had a staff of 28 at Amblin and, and we put out five films that year. 85. So, um, back to the future. Right, uh, one of them, uh, the Goonies, uh, Young Sherlock Holmes, uh, the right. Money Pit. Yes, and the Color Purple. Color Purple, yeah. I mean, this is what I was going to say to you, Mark. Amblin Entertainment at that time. I mean, still now, obviously, but at that time when you were there, had such an incredible run of movies. It, it's 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 actually quite unreal. So in 1984, you had Gremlins. Right, and Gremlins and was Gremlins was filmed Fandango. at Universal. Sorry, we also had Fandango, which was uh, Kevin Reynolds' uh, first feature, which um, uh, Amblin produced. Yeah, yeah, and and, and I was going to say Gremlins was filmed at Universal, wasn't it? There's a, there's there's a, there's a lot of similar um, scenes from Back to the Future in in Gremlins because it was shot in the same lot. Yes, yes, and um, gosh, we. Uh, and I wasn't around for for um, much for for Gremlins. I mean, I, I uh, um, you know, in fact, I'm trying to remember when because Gremlins came out in '84, so they would have shot that in yeah. in '83, really. So they were in post production when I when I uh, came to Amblin. I, re- I really uh, Joe Dante is one of my favorite um, directors, and he did a few, didn't he, for um, Amblin because he did In Our Space. He did Inner well. Space, and then he had also done um, uh, um, one of the episodes or one of the segments of the Twilight Zone movie as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, re- I really like Joe. Done amazing stories too. Sorry, Joe also did some amazing stories. Yeah, yeah. I, re- I really like Joe Dante. I, I think he's great. I, I really, really enjoy the things um, that he did. Um, so you know, I mentioned Back to the Future there. Uh, one again, one of my favourite movies. <laughs> um, you know, I don't know anybody that's got a bad word to say or, or does not like 
that movie. Uh, were, were you around much for that one? Were you involved much at the time of the, the production of Back of the Future? Not a lot, but here's here's the advantage of being young. Um, Stephen was directing second unit on The Goonies because it was such a, a big production and because the kids were you know the major focus of it. Um, they they couldn't work the hours that the adults did. So yeah. so there was so much to shoot. And with Donner's blessing, Stephen um, did some of the second unit work. And, and uh, uh, so he, we were at Warner Brothers on stage 15 and 16 and 19 uh, during the day. And then for a period of, uh, I guess, a couple of nights, um, I went down to Plenty Hills Mall and uh, PA'd the second unit um, with Frank Marshall of the – of the DeLorean, you know, the chase by the terrorists of the DeLorean and, and going wow. through the, the, the uh, photomath thing there. And, and uh, so I was, I was getting two or three hours sleep a night, but, but uh, I was young and I could do that. Uh, so that was really the extent of, of my involvement. And I remember um, the, the PA on, on uh, back to the future was a guy named Steve Talmy. And uh, uh I had a bet with Steve and I, you know, I said, you know, Goonies is going to make $300 million and back to the future might make, you know, 50 million. And uh, <laughs> so we, we had a bet. And of course I lost because I think Goonies ended up doing 90 and, and, and back to the future made over 300. Um, but, you know, and, and they're both beloved films now. So, so oh, definitely uh, was really, really proud of that. And I, I think your bet might have been influenced by, you know, the, the production problems that Back of the Future had, you know, with, with Eric Stoltz being replaced by Michael J. Fox. Can, were you aware of all this going on? Uh, I I was because um, uh, Bob Zemeckis, you know, had talked to Stephen and, and Stephen said, well, let me look at the dailies. And so yeah. um, I remember going into the projection booth at Amblin while Stephen was running the, the the that footage, and um, of course no one was supposed to be in the projection booth, but I told the projectionist that um, I had to be you know nearby if Stephen needed me, and uh, uh, so I, and, <laughs> you know, there's a lot to feel guilty about these days. But anyway, I um, uh, so I got to to see it, and and it was completely understandable. Um, you know, Eric Stoltz was a fine actor, and but he was just a bit too serious. And when he was put up against the other the other actors, especially Christopher Lloyd, it just um, you know the disparity. It was it was um, almost like Abbott and Costello. It was it was really lopsided. So so um, you know, I really ad- ad- admire Stephen for for um, protecting his filmmakers. And, yeah, it, uh, it must have been uh, an incredibly difficult conversation for, I think it might have been Robert Zemeckis that had the conversation with uh, Eric Stoltz. Yes, and, and you know, Bob is so laid back. Um, Bob Z is just, it's just he, he's just a very mellow guy. And uh, I know it. Um, uh, those things have to be so difficult. I can't imagine, you know, and, and but Eric seemed to, seemed to take it, you know, as well as could be expected. And, and, and really, I think everybody understands, even though it, it hurts at the time that you do what's best for the film. And, yeah. um, so, you know, the, one of the interesting stories is that, um, it, the reason that Eric Stoltz was cast was of course, Michael J. Fox wasn't available and that was yeah. really kind of their first choice, but it was down between, um, one other actor and Eric Stoltz. 
And Universal at the time had uh, Mask, um, uh, the you know the the movie with Cher, yes, coming out. And Sid Sheinberg, uh, when he was presented the the option, said, "Well, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna tell you what to you know who to cast, but we have this big movie with Eric Stoltz coming out, and the implication was you should cast Eric Stoltz, which is what they did. So." Um, they were just they were just being politically correct, I think, really. And yeah. um, so and, and but all things work out, you know, it's an incredible story. The production about the future with, with the extension in the production, but the, the you know, bringing the, the date forward to, to get it out in time for July the 4th. And, and, and it, it went down an absolute storm, didn't it? Right. Well, you know, what? and I, I remember thinking, I, I don't know how they're going to do this, because I'll tell you, um, I would go visit the, the this, when they were on stage at Universal. I would go visit in the evening sometimes. Um, you know, uh, uh, here we were doing Goonies at, at uh, Warner Brothers, and and the thing I love about Stephen is that he knows exactly what he wants. So it it was always a very frenetic um, uh, set, where and Stephen would say. You know, okay. Uh, first shot in the morning is uh, we're going to be on a 28 millimeter lens. I'm going to put on dolly tracks. We're going to do this. We're going to do that, and it would be ready for him when he came on the set. And he did that exactly what he said he was going to do. And then he said, okay, the first shot after lunch is we're going to be on a 75 millimeter lens. We're going to do this, and and it was just a really efficient way to work, and and it it just created a lot of activity. Contrast that with going over to the Back to the Future set at night, and having it being deathly quiet. And, you know, half the crew members are asleep and Bob Z <laughs> sitting in the director's chair saying, well, if I put the camera over there <laughs> and you thought, how are you, how are you going to make, you know, how are you going to make the wrap date, let alone the release date? But, uh, <laughs> you know, Bob Z knew exactly what he was doing. Yeah, well, he must have done two very different styles, though, aren't they? But, but clearly both very effective. Oh, absolutely! I got to tell you, and Bob Gale was was great. Bob Gale and Neil Canton um, were terrific producers, and and really kept, um, you know, to the schedule. And and Bob, being a writer, of course, one of the writers, um, knew, okay, we need to lose this or 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 tighten this so that we can, uh, you know, lose some uh, a day or two here and, and and make up for, you know, what we lost. But, but, um, so it was, it was really a very efficient production team. And I was, I was, uh, you know, real, I really admired those guys. There's a, there's a back to the future, the musical debut in here in the UK next year. You're kidding. No, no. Yeah. There's a, there's a, a, a musical back to the future, the musical in Manchester in February next year, uh, written by, Definitely written by Bob Gale. I think um, um, Mr. Zemeckis might have been included in the um, the production of it as well. But it's debuting here in Manchester next year, and I've got wow. a ticket. I've got a ticket for opening night, and I'm I'm very very excited. And as well, Chris Lloyd is here in Scotland next weekend. Is he really? Yeah, at a comic con. Yeah, I've got I've I've got my ticket for my photo opportunity with him. Uh, thank thanks to my mum. It's an early 40th birthday present. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. Well, if you ever, you know, get over to L.A., I'll, I'll be glad to take you to the to the locations. Now, that is definitely something I will take you up on. 
uh, Mark. However, I don't think I'll be getting the LA for a while because my wife is pregnant. <laughs> hey, congratulations. Thank you. So so it'll be a little while before I go anywhere, I think. However, I have been to LA before, actually. Um, I have been to LA and it was a, it was a flying visit, actually. It was We were only there th- three days because we were, we were in Vegas for two weeks. And oh. in the middle, we came away and we went to San Francisco and we, we came to LA. And while we were in LA, um, one whole day was taken up at Universal. I was going to say... You can't be in LA without going to Universal Studios. Yeah, no, I went. I went it's life, a lifelong thing that I wanted to go there and see the clock tower, and and I had a million photos taken with the the DeLorean. Um, <laughs> and on the day we were flying back, I wanted to go to the McFly house, but I just didn't have time. I just that's, didn't have I, time. I know that's disappointing. It's. Uh, <clears throat> I have uh, when when friends from out of town come to visit. You know, they want to um, see, um, you know, a lot of these locations. And uh, a friend of mine named Andrew Roger Carson, who was a, a, a British director, uh, came over and, and uh, um, I took him up to uh, the E.T. house, Elliot's house. Oh, wow. And uh, he actually cried because that that movie was such a touchstone in his life. Yeah. Uh, and it, it really meant a lot to him. So, um, you know, it's 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 fun and and uh, and. So uh, the offer stands if you ever want to if you ever get back here. But but congratulations on on uh, the coming addition to your family. Mark Marshall there. What a what a nice fella. Oh, what a nice fella. I really really enjoyed talking to him. I could have talked to him all night. Uh, I, I very nearly did. <laughs> um, but it's incredibly interesting stories he's got, hasn't he? I love them. Love those stories. So that's the end of part one. He has a little teaser of part two. So after the after the the practical joke, um, we went to the store and bought a ton of of um, meat and things like that, and and had a big barbecue that night. Uh, and Dick invited his next door neighbor Alice Cooper over, <laughs> and uh, the kids, of course, were in heaven because they you know, they they loved Alice Cooper. So Dick, who he's referring to there, is Richard Donner, and the kids that he's referring to are the Goonies kids. If you're a fan of the Goonies, you do not want to miss part two, honestly. I hope you enjoyed that. Really, really interesting. Like I said at the start, this is why I wanted to do the podcast, to hear these kinds of stories from my favourite movies. Please come back for the second part. You do not want to miss it. I'll speak to you next time. Thank you.